Church, I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Hopefully, for those of you who have been with us in January, that's not too big of a surprise that we would be going to Titus chapter 2 this morning. Titus 2 verses 11 through 14 as we continue our series uh, considering the grace of God and the way that it works out in the life of the believer and the life of the church together. Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 through 14. Let's uh, read that section of scripture this morning as we wrap up this series in this incredible sentence, really, in scripture. Titus 2, beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Heavenly Father, This morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the whole of this incredible letter of Titus, this verse that is is such a, a powerful statement about your gospel in the midst of it. We thank you for the whole of your word. I pray that you would help us to to recall and, and, and pull together and remember the truth that you have taught us, that your spirit would cause us to, to remember the whole of your truth as we reflect upon this section of it. And that as we remember our desires would be stoked, that we would see that there's something sweet here to be seen and to be heard, and most importantly, to be believed and walked in. I pray that you would do that in us. It would be a miracle, a miracle if you would work in people who are prone to wander, to be doggedly desirous of your grace. So we pray that you would do that, as you are so apt to do in your kindness and mercy and love. So we pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to do a little sentence diagramming. Anybody just super soaked about that? Um, all right, we're going we're gonna to look at a sentence, which is what this is. Uh, it's really one sentence for us. We've actually, by the time we're done with January, we really will have only looked closely into about half of this sentence that we've been reading during the course of this month. What I want us to do is I want us to see the way the core of the sentence holds together. If we can't understand the sentence and the words that are there, we can't understand the the grace and the truth that it's holding out for us. So let's lean forward and go through the effort of trying to to come to an understanding of what this sentence is really about. Okay? If you look at it with me, beginning at verse 11. So that means that I hope you have your Bible open. You have one of the paperback Bibles near you. You're going to need the scripture with you this morning. The core of the sentence is this, for the grace of God has appeared. You could have a period there, right? Like that's a good, complete sentence. But there's something that the Apostle Paul wants to share with Timothy and by extension the church about the grace of God. And so what remains in the sentence is an explanation of what he means by saying the grace of God has appeared. 
In our second week, we looked together at the fact that the grace of God has appeared and it did something. What did it do? What did it have the power to do? It had the power to bring salvation for all people. And we looked in detail at what that means in light of the whole of the scriptures. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then it does a second thing. We looked at that last week. The grace of God has appeared, training us. We saw that it did a twofold training. It trains us to renounce something, and it trains us to live in another way that is, is counter to what we have renounced. That while we've renounced ungodliness and worldly passions, it has trained us for self-controlled and upright and godly lives. Okay? So the grace of God brings salvation. It's able, right? The grace of God trains us to renounce and to live. Then we have the topic for this morning. In the next section, in verse 13, it says, waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. Now, this is a little bit different because we don't have the grace of God that is able to waiting for our blessed hope. It doesn't work, right? It just doesn't hold together. That's not the way the sentence flows. So now we need to figure out where does this word waiting lie in the scope of the sentence. So I looked at it, I believe that if you look at the sentence, for the grace of God has appeared, it's brought salvation. And really at the core of that middle, verse 12, it's trained us to live. And then by the time we get to verse 13, it's trained us to live in a particular way. It's trained us to live as a people who are waiting. If I could put this sentence together, and boil it down to its essential parts, I would say the sentence this way, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, and training us to live waiting. Live in a waiting sort of way. We are a people who live waiting for Jesus. And because we are waiting for a blessed hope, because we have, by the grace of God, bringing salvation, because we have a blessed hope, We are a people who are being trained by grace to labor in a self-controlled godliness from a place of rest, from a place of waiting, from a place of peace, the great promise of the whole of the scriptures. Grace has brought us a life of peaceful, restful waiting because of what grace has purchased for us, a blessed hope. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at that that verse 13 together in detail. Verse 13, we are waiting for our blessed hope. And then we're told what that blessed hope is. It is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let's begin by considering this waiting by looking at present and future hope. You know that Thomas Manton has proved very helpful to me. As he's, he actually, I believe it's something along the lines of 12 sermons on this one sentence in the scriptures. And each one of those sermons could be like a five-part sermon series for me, okay? So he has been extremely helpful to me. I'm going to share this quote of Thomas Manton regarding the nature of our present and future hope. He says this, The world is drowned in sense and present satisfaction. 
your way right away, right? And you don't even have to say it Burger King now because it's everywhere. That's what's being peddled to us, your way right away. It doesn't even have to be peddled to us. That's, that's our worldly desires. That is our way. Drowned in a sense and present satisfactions. They are, oh, this is so good, mercenaries. You know what mercenaries do, right? They do stuff for money and money only. They do stuff for, for a particular immediate satisfaction. They are mercenaries that must have pay in hand. Their souls droop if they do not meet with credit and applause and profit. They make man their paymaster. They have the spirit of a servant. That is our natural inclination. This is our way to have the spirit of a servant. What's the spirit of a servant? Oh, it's great to have a servant heart, right? No, that prizes present wages above the inheritance. We're a servant who demands and desires the wage of a master. But it is a work of grace to look for the blessed hope and a great help to us in our work. Here's what happens. I can't overstate the importance of this quote. We are a people who by nature demand present satisfaction over a future hope. That is the nature of, of our wandering so very often. Even for those who have believed, we are a people who tend toward a present satisfaction over future hope. What that makes us is it makes us a slave to payment and wage and the things of this world. But what God offers is glorious and infinite inheritance. We are a people who are slaves to a wage by nature. What God gives is a glorious, infinite inheritance. Completely different thing. It's as if we would say that we would rather be a servant in the world with payment at hand rather than a son in the kingdom with an eternal inheritance and a blessed hope. Is that what you are? Are you a servant in the world demanding various worldly passions and comforts and wages? Or do you look at a glorious inheritance that's promised? To a people as a gift of grace. Let's consider Jesus as an example. How in the world did Jesus walk in absolute and perfect righteousness? The scriptures actually tell us. They tell us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, it says this. It tells us to run with endurance, okay? Run with endurance the race that is set before us. And we would run with endurance... By looking to Jesus, who's the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then how did he do that? How is he founder and perfecter of this faith that requires righteousness? Well, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's the deal. Core to the life of Jesus was obedience to the Father. Absolutely core to his gospel mission was obedience, perfect, righteous obedience to the Father. 
Where did the obedience come from? How did he renounce the enemy and absolutely resolve to live in righteousness? The passage says that Jesus looked forward in joy. He looked forward in joy. It was from a posture of waiting for something that was to come that the faithful, fruitful, patient life of Jesus was lived even through the cross. In fact, the truly righteous, grace-compelled life that is lived is a life that is lived in light of a blessed hope. Let's try to apply this. Let's try and bring it down for just a moment. This is something that we say very often at Cross Point Coast. We say that we are to live our lives from a position of rest. Now, we know in this world there's not a great deal of rest, right? This world is wearisome for everyone, the believer and the unbeliever alike. What do we mean by saying that we're supposed to live this life from a place of rest? We we mean what this passage means when it's talking about the grace of God has trained us to live waiting. What we mean is this, that we live lives waiting on blessed hope and expectation of its coming. All that we have is found in the promise of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the help of the Holy Spirit. That's all that we have, and so we wait for it. It's all that we believe that will remain when this world passes away is the grace, the promise of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we cling to it in expectation and hope. And as we rest in that reality, the promise of the Father, the grace of the Son, the help of the Spirit, as we rest in the triune God, we look forward in hope of grace that it's actually training us right now, as we're waiting, right now to live in righteousness. As if the whole gospel thing was actually kind of true. As if it was actually true that the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will appear. And we will find it satisfactory. What really, when we were spending our time in, in Hebrews, just a a number of months ago, we spent so much time looking at the fact that what faith is, is faith looks forward and grabs from the inheritance that is promised to us by grace the sufficient means of our present obedience. That's what our hope is. That's what it looks like to wait. Now, what we're waiting for is our blessed hope. Three words. Let's spend just a few moments Considering each of these, our blessed hope, the word our, just very quickly, let's briefly remember that this is a shared hope. It's a hope that we together have been reconciled to God, that we, ours, it's our hope as a body, as a, as a church, as his redeemed people, we've been reconciled to God. And if we've been reconciled to God, we've been reconciled to one another. It's together that we wait for our blessed hope. I think we should pass that over and consider the implications of what it looks like to wait together. I want you to know, when I look at the, cross, the, the congregation at Cross Point Coast, as I look at you, I see a people who are waiting together. And it's beautiful 
to watch, a people who are waiting, and when one of us is getting impatient as we wander off after sin and its deceitfulness in the world, we say, hey, there's something better coming. And we preach grace, and we say, that will destroy you. And it is completely the opposite of what the hope that you have confessed. We remind each other of the reality of the disaster of our sinfulness, even while reminding one another of the glory of our hope. I see a people who are actually, by grace, actually waiting together. And so, I'm encouraged to press on. And what we find over and over again, as we'll see even in a passage in just a moment, I see grace building upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, as we are trained together to live lives of waiting. Now, it is ours. It's our blessed hope. And listen, it's actually blessed. You remember that, right? It's not just a hope. It's a blessed hope. Like this is a good thing. Do you remember that our hope is a blessing? Do you remember that our hope is actually a product of grace? We're not just waiting for our blessed hope. It's the grace of God that has trained us to live lives waiting for our blessed hope. Our blessed hope is the product of grace. As my children are getting older, they're beginning to get jobs and they're working in our neighborhood and in the workplace. And what they're learning as they're doing these jobs, they're learning that there is wages and there is work and there is, to get the order correct, There's work, and then there's wages, right? That's how it works. There's so many hours, get so many hours of pay. If you take a lunch break, you don't get paid for the lunch break. If you stay late, you may just find yourself gaining more hours. And if you gain more hours, you will have worked more. And if you work more, you get wage. This is really quite simple. Wages are the product of work. And that means that wages are not blessing. Get that. Wages are not blessing. Wages are works due. I mean, you might just be polite, and like when the manager hands you the check, you say thank you, and all that you mean is thanks for not throwing it on the floor and making me pick it up from there. But you're not thanking them that the coin is right that's on that check, do you see? It's yours. And you take it. And you're glad that you worked and took it home. It's a simple exchange of one thing for another. Time and talent for a wage. And the scriptures are clear that there is a wage that is due us. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. It's really a a quite simple reality. Sin has a wage. Death is the simple payment in exchange for sin. Death is not some abstract alien invader and judgment on our lives. It is our due. It is what is due us. It is part of God's covenant with Adam in the garden. It is what is due him. It's what was procured. It was what was obtained for our life's labor. And it's coming, right? And when we wait for Christ our Savior, what we have to realize is we do not wait for our blessed wage. You see it? We are not being trained by grace to wait for our blessed 
wage. That wouldn't be a blessing. It would simply be what's due us. If our hope was actually what was due to us, our, our, our wage, but that's not what we have. It's not what is due us. It's a blessed hope that has been obtained by grace. It's a salvation. It's a reconciliation to God. It's to see and savor Jesus Christ. It's eternal life. So hope is not our wage. It, it was earned. Make no mistake. We looked at that when we considered salvation just a few weeks ago. Grace was earned. It was a life's, a wage for a life's labor, but it wasn't our life that earned it. Eternal life, resurrection life, is the wage that is due to Christ. And Jesus, the Christ, purchasing that wage of resurrection life through his sacrificial death on the cross and the might of his taking up his life for himself has by grace given that life to us. So what we have is a free gift of God by grace given by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's blessed. Do you see it? Our blessed hope. Yeah, I have a sure hope of eternal life. It's true. And it's a sacred blessing for the people of God. I want to take a moment to go back to Thomas Manton. He, I think he just ties a bow on this for us. When I do that which is forbidden, I deserve punishment. But when I do that which is commanded, I do not deserve reward. Because I'm bound to do it. I have a God and I have an obligation. So where does blessed hope come from? Our hope is a blessed hope because it is an alien invader into the lives that warrant death. It is a gift from the outside that comes in by grace through faith. Hope is a thief on a cross, dying justly for his crime, crying out in absolute desperation, and hearing utterly unexpected, utterly undeserved words, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Tell me that thief doesn't understand what is blessed about our hope. Do we understand that that's us? Do we have ourselves situated there so that when we hear hope, we don't say, yeah, that's right, kind of had it coming? Or do we see how... Our hope is a blessed hope. And it is hope. And come to the object of our waiting. Our waiting has an object, and that waiting is hope. Grace has appeared, training us to live, waiting for our blessed hope. We're going to spend a few moments in Romans chapter 5. I would even encourage you to turn there. It's a pretty lengthy passage. Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. Romans chapter 5, through him, speaking of Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You can see it. When the the scriptures are talking about standing in grace and standing in faith and endurance and perseverance, it's talking about waiting for our blessed hope. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's worth maybe writing a song about, right? 
Maybe we should sing it in just a little while. But not only that, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that, follow the logic of this train, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given, given grace to us. Look how hope works. We have obtained access to grace. This grace is the same as is in our passage in Titus chapter 2. And that access brings us salvation and training. But not only that, it trains us to rejoice in every single circumstance. Then the great chain of rejoicing, suffering, endurance, character, hope. A people able to hope, wait in hope, rest in hope in every circumstance. What we do is we indulge ourselves in the middle of suffering, even as Christ did on the cross and in the garden and throughout the whole of his obedience to the Father. We indulge ourselves in hope. It is our food in the midst of suffering. And as we indulge ourselves there, we find endurance and Character and what? More hope. More hope. We think and ponder and imagine and search and remember our blessed hope. When we're suffering, we remember grace and rejoice in hope. And when we're comforted, we remember grace. We remember hope. And all the while, grace is training us with with a character and an endurance in that cycle of remembering hope. And our hope increases. I can illustrate it this way. When I was born, I was given by a friend who I actually don't even know. I was born, you know, lesson one. And I was given this little Mickey Mouse statue. It sits on a cabinet in my bedroom to this day. I was also given shortly thereafter a Mickey Mouse stuffed animal. I was going to bring that in today, but I figured uh, my whole household would be terribly embarrassed by the fact that I still have it. Um, and uh, I dreamed of Mickey. I grew up looking at this little guy and cuddling with Mickey and dreamed of that guy. Now, for you who were raised in Florida, you may not really get what I'm talking about here, but growing up in the Midwest and a family that didn't really take travel for vacations, our vacations was to travel about 30 minutes to the local pond and fish all weekend long. It was wonderful, but it wasn't Disney. All right, And I would hear stories of friends who got on a plane and they flew all the way from Indiana to that far off exotic land in central Florida and I knew it was never for me. I knew it. I, I had, was never ever thought I would go to Disney. Disney is a place that excites the imagination and it's an object of so many children's dreams. Now imagine... A little boy with his statue sitting on his dresser all those years being told by his parents, you are finally going to Disney. Now the real dreams begin. See, before it was this really neat thing that you knew you would never have. But now 
Your parents have told you something and you've placed your faith in it because your parents' word is true and you're going to go. And the dreams begin and you begin to what? You research the rides, right? You talk to those friends who got on that plane. And you discover which rides are popular in each of the parks and what times to go and which fast passes to get. And you watch all the old Disney films as you recount your favorite characters and you collect up all the posters and all the stuffed animals and all the little statues and sticker books that remind you of what you are about to encounter. That sounds like an awfully busy boy for a boy who's only waiting, right? You see... To truly hope, to wait in hope, is to dream, to imagine, and to remember, and to stoke every desire and dream about the substance of what is real. Thomas Manton puts it this way. It informs us of the reason why the world and sin have such power over men why they lie under the power of present things. We do not awaken our hopes and consider blessedness to come so much as we should. See a little boy who hears about Disney but then goes around simply doing just the normal things, has not been truly changed, and has not had his life oriented around that great hope that's to come. I've been to Disney now. (laughs) Many of you were raised here. You've been there before and you're kind of done with it. Some of you just keep on going back. So be it. I'm not meaning to crush your dreams. But it's just Disney. I even got to get my picture taken with the mouse about a year ago. (laughs) It's pretty neat. (laughs) But it isn't the eternal blessed hope. Oh, what if we stoked our dreams? What if... Salvation, the great rest and hope that we have in Jesus Christ was to actually become true. What if we imagined and explored and and researched and came to understand more fully the glories of what are to come? Surely that hope has captured your imagination, right, church? I mean, surely you don't look like you're completely ignoring the very Hope, an object of your heart's longing and satisfaction. Surely, surely the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ won't come as a surprise for you, an interruption to the normal course of life. Surely you will be found looking up in expectation, waiting for his glorious appearing. Surely, right? You see, the believer is a person who waits. A believer is a person who reaches in his heart and mind for what is to come. We don't have to simply imagine out of thin air. We can let our imaginations run wild with what is actually there. And we can come to know and research the glories of heaven. We can search out the expectations and the promises of the scriptures. We can become enamored and emulate the character of the one who is the central object of all of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me put it simply. To have hope is to wait on hope. If you have the hope, you are waiting on the hope. 
It's to rest in its comfort and in its expectation that would carry you through every one of this world's sufferings and distractions. And they're just that for you. They're just distractions to our blessed hope. For those who wait for our hope in this way, surely you will find it a blessed and an increasingly blessed hope. Now, we are told some very specific things about this hope in this passage in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. And then we're told what it is. It's not hopefulness, but rather hope has an object. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The appearing of glory. I love that phrase. It is an idea that's also picked up in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where it speaks of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where are we going to see and come to a knowledge of the glory of God, but in the face of Jesus Christ, the appearing of the grace of God. At the beginning of our passage in Titus, gave us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. It brought salvation. And so we know that this glory, this light, this salvation is found in Jesus alone. We know that. According to the scriptures. Therefore, while we have salvation in Christ, in the gospel of his grace alone, while we have is the appearance of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We long for Christ to come again and to bring us into the kingdom once for all. We have a taste of what is to come. Right now, we live in between these two appearings. You see the word appearings. It's in the passage. It's there twice. The grace of God has appeared, and we're longing for the appearing of the glory. We live between these appearings, the appearing of the grace of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ and the glory of God in Jesus' return. We are people between advents, between the gracious and the glorious, between the humble and the majestic comings of our Lord. This is where we live and this is how we wait. The passage makes it explicit. Listen, I hope this is a corrective. I know it's a corrective to so much that is called evangelical culture out there. We are not waiting merely for heaven. We aren't waiting for the end of pain or for long-departed loved ones, though those are all the promises that are there. We are waiting for the glorious appearing. We're waiting for Jesus. He is the object of our hope. It's through him that we've obtained grace. It's in him that we rejoice, and it's to him we will come. It's for that reason that Romans 5.2 that we turned to just a moment ago says through him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Is that where you're going, or are you just going to heaven? Or are you going to where God dwells in eternal splendor? where God will remake the heavens and the earth and we will dwell with him and reign with him and share in his inheritance. We've obtained access by grace through faith in him. Our blessed hope has a name. Let us not forget it. It's not just an object. It is a person. 
In our passage, we are told we are waited for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's not miss it again as we look at it. It does say ours, right? It's our blessed hope. It's our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us remember that he is ours because salvation, he is ours. Because the great hope is ours. Jesus is ours. He he has, by grace, become the possession of the church. He is ours to enjoy and to long for and to take hold of. And he is the great God. How sure and definitive the Apostle Paul is right here. If you've ever wondered, he is the great God. When we speak of our hope, we speak of God. Jesus is our great God. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. And that God is the great God. And he's not only our great God, he is our great Savior. Our great God and our great Savior are one and the same. It is a misguided and ignorant suggestion to believe that God is harsh and fierce and a judge, and Jesus is sweet and kind and forgiving. He is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is judge and justifier, one and the same. Lest we have any confusion, when we speak of our great God and our great Savior, we're speaking about Jesus. When Jesus came to the earth to die in the place of sinners, God, our Savior, appeared. And when Jesus returns for his church to bring us into his final and eternal kingdom, God, our Savior, our great God, will appear. He's the object of our hope. One more time, Thomas Manton What do we do with this? It is a poor, comfortless meditation. All of the month of January, a poor and comfortless meditation to think of a blessed hope and the certainty of it unless we have an interest in these things. Do you have an interest in these things? Is it your blessed hope? with the church. Friends, the first application for every single heart in the room this morning is to ask yourselves, is this hope my hope? It is a comfortless meditation if it's not yours. As hearers of the great gospel in Acts chapter 2, they cried out with this, what must we do to be saved? What must we do to be rescued and to be granted a great hope? And the answer is surely the doing has already been done, friends. The doing has already been done. Jesus has died your death and taken up his life. And he is the one who grants eternal life as a gift of grace. What is left for you to do is to repent and believe today, to repent of your sin and to believe the good news of Jesus, that he is the only means of obtaining any interest in the blessed hope, that it is his to give by his grace, by his mercy, 
alone. Now, we can't wrap this up without at least reading what remains of this passage. We are a people who, for the grace of God, appearing, bringing salvation, training us to renounce, waiting for our blessed hope. We're told that the blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the remainder of the passage is an explanation of what they mean by Jesus Christ. I love this. It says who, and so it's about to describe who it was just talking about and what does it have to say about Jesus? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. You hear the hour in that, right? A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The whole time we've been reading through to the end of verse 14, and we've been doing so because what we're doing in the whole of this passage is we're reading about Jesus. It very well could have said when Jesus appeared. We're talking about a retelling of the story of grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see in this last verse that Jesus gave himself for us. It's really a retelling of grace appearing. We're told that Jesus has redeemed us. It's a retelling that he brought salvation. It's a retelling that Jesus redeemed us from lawlessness and purified us. You see, grain is training us to renounce and to live. It's a retelling that Jesus has made us his own possession. And so we who belong to him wait for his appearing. Come, Jesus, for your church. This morning, the call is clear to the church. A church who have been brought salvation. We know about that. We talk about it a good bit. A church that's being trained for righteousness. Oh, we like to talk about that because it looks like we're doing something, right? But the call for the church this morning is a life of waiting. This morning, the call is to wait for Jesus, who is our blessed hope. And I'll tell you how we'll know if this church is waiting well. Again, Romans 5.2. Through him we have obtained access by grace into this faith in which we stand. And we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Does the church look like a people recounting and remembering and exploring and researching and telling and rejoicing in our blessed hope? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for sentences. We, we don't write sentences like this, but your spirit inspires them. And we read sentences like this and we say, that thing's too long. But your spirit awakens our hearts to remember and to see and to believe. We can plumb the depths of the, your grace as it is told throughout the whole of the scriptures forever. And we will. The day of our waiting will come to an end. Lord, I pray that not one person in this room would find their waiting to be comfortless because they haven't actually waited upon you. But they've fritted about in this world earning wages and temporal satisfactions. And Lord, for the believer in this room, I pray that you would... A renewed viewing 
of your grace, a renewed remembering of the blessedness of our shared hope would frit away from us the desires for the things of this world. And they'll come back and our worldly passions will be there and grace will train us again to renounce, to live waiting. Pray that you would create a church who does this well. We remember well. We are a community that points one another to Jesus, our blessed hope. Lord, thank you for bringing salvation. Thank you for training us. Thank you for giving us a glorious object for our waiting, such a glorious object that we might have peace today as we wait upon him. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. We trust you to work this in us these days. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name, in the name of Jesus, our great God and Savior. Amen.